0: How do we resist the devil? Do we use some kind of formula? Find out on Change by Grace. Welcome to Change by Grace. I'm Pastor Steve Herford. Today and next time, we're looking at 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. This section tells us how we are to respond to the devil. Do we shout things at him? Do we bind him? Well, let's find out what our response should be as we look together at 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And today, the plan is is to conclude our study of 1 Peter. But we'll see how that goes. Because there is actually a lot of information still left to cover. But today we're picking up at verse 8 and carrying it down to verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 through 14. This has been a rich study as we've been going through this letter, as we've been learning all the facets of persecution and suffering and how that affects our lives and why God uses suffering in our life. But notice here as he begins at verse 8 with these final words, "'Be of sober spirit, be on the alert,' Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Well, if you'll notice from hearing that, that Peter has returned to his theme of suffering as he brings this letter to a conclusion. But as he does this, he gives us three commands that we need to pay attention to, and those three commands are given to us by four exhortations that cover this section of Scripture. It's a wonderful thing that he does this, and how he does this, we'll see in verse 10, of a wonderful reminder that you and I need to hold on to when we are suffering, when we are more specifically being persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, we've been learning that suffering is the will of God. You know, Paul has echoed these same words over in Philippians 1, and 30, where he said, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And the very conflict that he experienced was because people responding to the gospel, you either have one or two responses, you accept it, receive it, believe it, embrace it, or you reject it. And in your rejection, some people become very hostile. And we see so many examples of that, and Paul experienced that for sure, and he references that very often. And we also have to keep in mind that since persecution is a reality for all the followers of Christ, none of us are exempt from it. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are subject to being persecuted for your faith in Christ. Now, you may have went... uh, to this point, your whole Christian life, and have never suffered persecution for your faith. And it's not because you're not talking to people about Jesus. You just haven't had that kind of response. And praise the Lord that you haven't experienced some form of persecution. But we do experience it. And it may happen at some other time in your life, or it may happen today, may happen tomorrow. We live in a different culture Our culture has changed just in the last two years with this COVID thing. And people have become actually more hostile to truth. They don't want to hear truth. They want to believe lies. And so it makes what we have to say very important, even more important, because we are those who hold the truth. We have the truth to give them. Now, Peter has also began this letter by talking about the purpose of suffering. And I want to remind you of this. And that's in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he says, "...in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he is talking about rejoicing is, rejoicing in is the fact that you are kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But for now, we're distressed by various trials, Right? We all go through trials. James 1, verses 1 through 12 is on the entire subject of trials. And then he talks about what happens when you fail the trial. That's verses 13 through 18. But here Peter says that there is a form of distress that comes from trials. That is so true. But he also says the proof of your faith. These trials aid us in self-examination. Our faith is subject to testing. And we've been seeing that all throughout this letter. Well, as we begin to look at this, there are some final exhortations, final words of action that Peter wants his readers to engage themselves in. If you remember, he is writing to the church. And this church was suffering during the time of Nero. And Nero was a very wicked ruler of Rome, just as they had many wicked rulers. But he was one who set the city on fire because he wanted to rebuild the city. And people began to turn on him, and so he blamed it on the Christians. Well, they were already experiencing some form of persecution. This just escalated it to the point to where... The bodies of Christians would be impaled on poles and they would be there to light his garden parties. That would be one party I wouldn't want to attend to see all of that. How about you? So what do you say as you're closing out a letter like this? What do you say in terms of words of encouragement to a suffering church? I mean, again, he's, he's approached this from so many different angles. I mean, we've been dealing with this subject the entire time. What else can you say? Well, look at verse 8. He begins with, be sober. Be sober. Now, this is not the first time Peter has said this. He said it in chapter 1 and verse 13. He said it in chapter 4 and verse 7. This is the Greek word nepho. Nepho is a command, as it's used right here. It occurs six times in the New Testament. Three of those six times are right here in First Peter. The word meant in classical Greek one who was completely unaffected by wine, that is, one who avoided intoxication. And later it came to be known as a sober matter or a manner of living that's demonstrated by a wonderful virtue that you get when you're filled with the Spirit. You know what it is? Self control. You remember Galatians 5 and 23 that gives us the list? Of the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way I remind you it's fruit and not fruits. Plural. It's one fruit. It's a multicolored fruit if you want to say that. A multi-fruited fruit. <laughs> if you want to say it that way. But when you're filled with the Spirit. You get all of it. You don't get just one or two. You get it all. See why it's important that we're filled with the Spirit. And one of those is self-control. So. Peter is calling them for some balance. He's calling for balance in their disposition, balance in their thought life, balance in their actions, their responses. This is talking about steadfastness, endurance, self-control, clarity of mind, a moral decisiveness. This is what each believer needs to give themselves to. And when you do this, you have to deny some things. And one of those things you have to deny is worldly pleasures. This allows you to be alert, able to guard yourself against the attacks of the enemy. It makes you ready to receive the revelation of Christ But we need to keep this in mind too, that if you're the one that has not really experienced a lot of trouble in your life for your faith, then hear the words of Spurgeon when he says this. He says, "...when we think we have no occasion for our sword, we begin to unbuckle it from our side. We strip off our armor piece by piece, and then it is that we become most exposed to the attacks of our enemy." In Ephesians 6, 10 and following, when it talks about the armor of God, it talks about putting it on and leaving it on. Don't take it off. Don't think that just because you're not experiencing some kind of trouble right now for your faith, that you can just take it all off. So we have to make sure that we're sober-minded. Notice the second thing he says. Be alert. And this is really a command which is the second one, to wake up. To wake up is a call to to be wakefully active, both morally and spiritually. This is talking about a spiritual alertness. It has an emphasis on one's focus of attention. This is a call to be alert. Alert against what? Well, against the assaults of sin and the assaults of Satan. So those are two reasons that you need to be this way. But let me give them to you again. And the second will be a little different than I just mentioned. The first one is, is because of the adversary, the devil. The devil is a real angelic creature who sinned and who led our first parents, Adam and Eve, into sin, particularly Eve. But he is a real creature. Some people don't believe in the fact that there is really a devil. The Bible speaks of it. Jesus spoke of it many times. But let me give you some of the things the Bible says about the devil. First of all, he was originally called the star of the morning, the star of dawn in Isaiah 14, 12. In Ezekiel 28, which also gives us information about him, tells us that he was the seal of perfection, he was full of wisdom, he was perfect in beauty. It tells us in Ezekiel 28.13 that he was in the garden of God, which is Eden. It tells us in verse 14 that he was anointed cherub. It also tells us, and this is a phrase for heaven, he was on the mountain of God. In his original creation, this is what he was like. And it's amazing that, you know, you have people that try to depict pictures of him and, and they put a creature with pointed horns and a pointed tail and a pitchfork and all of this kind of stuff. You know, I don't think that that depicts him at all because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that he appears as an angel of light. He appears in a way that's deceptive because that's... His nature. He's deceptive. He's cunning. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. So he's not going to present himself to you in some kind of frightful way or present himself to you in a way that you would know it's him. He works by stealth. That's amazing about our stealth bomber, of how quiet it is. And just think of the activity here when he talks about a lion. That's not quiet, but we'll see where the stealth comes in. Ezekiel 28, 15 tells us that the devil was blameless in his ways from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in him. We don't know where this unrighteousness came from other than the fact that it says it was in him. So God initially judged him for this. Paul references this in 1 Timothy 3.6 when he talks about you shouldn't have a new convert as a pastor because they would be lifted up with pride or conceit and fall under the same condemnation as the devil. We know from Isaiah 14 that that certainly was pride being exhibited when he gave the five I wills. Listen to what he said, Isaiah 14.13. But you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven... I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And the stars of God, according to Job, tells us that that's referring to the angels. So he's going to raise himself above the angels. He's going to sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And many understand that is to be the Shekinah glory of God. And I will make myself like the Most High. That was his desire. He wanted to be like God. In fact, we could even take it a step further because this is really where false teachers fall in as well is that they don't want to just be like God, they want to dethrone God. People today would rather that God didn't exist at all, that there was no God. Ezekiel 28, 17 states that your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor and God says, I will cast you to the ground I put you before kings that they may see you. Even verse 16 says, I've cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Now that happened after he sinned. And God also promises in the future that he will be thrust down to the recesses of the pit. And I believe that that has a a reference to Revelation chapter 20. See, when Jesus comes back, He will cast the beast and the false prophet, according to Revelation nineteen twenty, alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And then it says in chapter 20 and verse 1, He will send an angel who has the key to the abyss, the bottomless pit. He will take hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and He will bound him for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20 and verse 7 tells us that He will be released from His prison. And it says, He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And all God's people should shout hallelujah, amen to that. This is the fate of our accuser. The Bible refers to him as our adversary. You see that in verse 8. Your adversary. And that means he's one who accuses. Specifically, accuses us before the court of God. He did that with Job. He does that with all of God's people in one form or another. Let me show you how he did this to Job. Let me have you to turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, and just look at verse 6 and following. First five verses tells us a little bit about Job, what kind of man he was, tells us about his possessions and about his family. It says in verse 6, There was a day when the sons of God, that is the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking about around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. God's saying this about him. Amazing words. And then Satan answered, and here's where the accusations come in. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. That's what our enemy does. He accuses us before God. And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. And so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. See, anything that happens in our life has to happen only because God has allowed it to happen. Just in the case here with Job, he allowed Satan to test him. Now go to chapter 2, he did it again. In chapter 2, verses 1 and following, it says again, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And by the way, the roaming and the walking shows that he is not omnipresent, that he can be everywhere at the same time. God is the only one that can be omnipresent. Satan is not You know, if we're in two geographical locations, he can't be messing with you and messing with me too. But he has a lot of fallen angels too. Satan answered the Lord from roaming and walking around on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. You know, there have been all throughout history faithful followers of Christ that have experienced an enormous amount of torture at the hands of their persecutors. You know, we read about Joseph and his life and what he went through with his brothers and, and how God elevated him, but if you read in other places in the New Testament, or rather in the Old Testament, like in the Psalms, it talks about how that he was chained, he was put in fetters. His, beat were feet, uh, his feet were beaten. Uh, he did go through a amount of trial and suffering. Two years in prison. Forgotten about. Left there. But God was with him. And folks, that's what you and I have to understand. And that God is with us when we suffer. We're not alone. But as you see in these two examples here with Job, uh, he is... Relentless in his accusations. He is the accuser of the brethren. And it says in Revelation 12:10, as that phrase, accuser of the brethren, is used, it says he is the one who accuses them before our God day and night. That's why we need to be sober and alert. We have an adversary, the devil. And here's the second reason why you need to be that, is because our adversary is just like a lion hunting its prey. Here he's described as a roaring lion. Anybody here visit Caddyshack Ranch? Not far from here, about 35 cats they have down there. I used to live three houses from them. Lived there for 29 years. We could hear them all the time but not just at any time. You know when you would hear them? Feeding time. That's when you would hear them. Because we'd be out there feeding too. Same time, we would hear the roaring of the lions. You have to understand about a lion, and I've watched some videos, and for some reason I've got this crazy thing about watching these hunting and praying kind of videos of the animals. It's, It's very fascinating to me to watch how they operate. You know, we live on a large piece of land and I tell my boys all the time when you walk to certain areas, you've got to be alert. You don't know what you're going to walk up on and uh, just need to be prepared. A lion will stalk its prey from about 30 to 40 yards and he's extremely quiet. He's stealth. And he quietly creeps up and then when he's close enough, you know what he does? He lets out a mighty roar. You know why he does that? Because it confuses the animal. It strikes fear into them. And they can't think. They're paralyzed with fear. They freeze. They're trapped. And they're caught. And by the way, it's interesting when you watch lions catch prey. They work as a team. They'll use the lionesses... And they will maneuver their prey. And they will turn them in directions they they, they need them to turn into for the time of the kill. But they work together. And animals that don't work together, trying to take down larger animals, are usually unsuccessful. But lions are very crafty at this. So it's very interesting that Peter would use this as an illustration for us. Because if you think about it, The devil does prowl his territory. He seeks after those who get alone, and that's what happens uh, when they go after their prey. They want to go after the weak. They go after the young, the newborns. They go after those that separate themselves from the rest of the herd because they don't have that protection now. And, And see, that gives us all kinds of... Metaphors in our life as believers, we don't want to get out there and separate ourselves from the church and get out from under the protection of the church because we become prey. But that's what he does, and he does it to believers, and he sneaks up on them, and he instills fear, and he causes confusion, and he attacks. You know, the scripture tells us how important it is for thinking on the right things. Philippians 4.8, think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good repute and things that are praiseworthy. That's where our thoughts are to be. But you know where Satan attacks you to is in your thought life. And boy, do we have so many things out there to hinder our thought life. You've been listening to our study today from 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. Our study is called Be Sober and Alert. And we would like to make this message available to you today. All you have to do is give us a call at 904-651-3351. If you'd like, you can visit our website and download the free MP3. The address is www.changedbygrace.org. Well, I'm Pastor Steve Herford. I do want to thank you for listening today. And I hope that you'll join us again next time as we study together from God's Word. Hi, I'm Pastor Steve Herford. I want to personally invite you to visit Eastport Baptist Church this morning at 11 o'clock. Eastport is biblical, expository, and reformed. I look forward to meeting you and worshiping together.